Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil. On today's episode, we'll conclude our two-part conversation with Clay Stamp, who is the executive director of the Opioid Command Center in Maryland. We begin this episode talking about how a number of jurisdictions in Maryland, they have a mobile crisis unit. Enjoy this episode. See, see the mobile crisis team is critical to all these programs. We have to implement that infrastructure to support various portals into treatment, right? Safe station being one. Mm-hmm. Um, others are, you know, we you know, we have EMS responding to calls every day. Um, somebody may present it at, a, at a pharmacy and say, "I need help." I mean, there, you know, there we have to create that infrastructure to support uh, programs, such as the one I mentioned earlier, which is law enforcement assisted diversion. Give that police officer an option to say, "You know what? This guy doesn't really need to be arrested. This guy needs or gal needs treatment." So he engages with the mobile crisis that's team. That's right. Oh, fantastic! That's, that's right. And we have we have you know we have uh, three soon to be four of those programs in Maryland, and we you know and the intent is to grow that out. And again, four teams, some, four mobile crisis teams, you know, in, in four different jurisdictions oh, four, in Maryland. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and so you know, again, these are not unique to Maryland. These can work anywhere. Sure. Um, and uh, and we can all learn from each other, as you mentioned, the Safe Station program. Outstanding. Um, so let's move along to requiring and publishing performance measures on addiction treatment providers. You know, as a dad with um, a son who was struggling with opioid dependence, um, I I can tell you how vulnerable you are when you're looking for resources for your loved one. You're really, really vulnerable, and you're going to believe what they tell you. You know, 90% cure rates and all kinds of things that you know, we now know, I now know, that that's, that's not true. That's, that's not it. So let's talk just a little bit about that. Uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, it's a scary place for a parent to be uh, and a helpless place for a parent to be. I mean, one of the things that drive my passion, and I'm a father and I'm a grandfather, and I've had, and I've had this impact my family as well, so I understand but I don't understand the horror that I hear in many voices that I talk to. The governor sends me um, individuals that have lost loved ones, and it's it's uh, it's it's heart wrenching. Uh, but it drives it drives our passion as a group to push forward. It, it's so important that we we um, 
we work aggressively to make the system that provides support as, as less complicated as we can. And, and that's a challenge. That's Transparent. A ch- also. Exactly. Transparency is very important. But not only transparency, but, uh, you know, make sure that we are holding people accountable that provide services. You know, we've seen some unfortunate stories uh, from the South, um, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, things happening in recovery centers. Uh, we don't want to replicate that in Maryland. In Maryland, we are going through an accreditation process. Some people, some, some providers complain about that, and others realize the importance of it. Um, because we, we need to make sure that people that are being referred to and engage in treatment, uh, that, it's, that it's credible, it's reputable, and, you know, uh, they'll, get, you know they'll get the best. That, uh, that's outstanding. And so uh, one thing that I'd, I'd like to do, Clay, if possible, would be publish a, uh, a, a document or any kind of article that relates to that and relates to some of the, the standards um, that, uh, you know, that you're developing here. I'd like to publish that along with this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Be Great. glad to, to get that uh, for you. Our, our, uh, our Maryland Department of Health Behavioral Health Administration is working tirelessly to, uh, to make sure that we, we, uh, you know, we shift and make sure that we, we, we achieve this accreditation and we achieve that clarity or transparency that we need in Maryland. Um, and working with the federal government to do that because really this, this, uh, you know, this epidemic has no borders. Yeah, yeah. So you alluded to it a little bit earlier. I assume when you talked about down south, uh, some of the problems that they experienced, you're talking about Florida and the issues there. We did, actually, we did a, a podcast with the state attorney down there in Palm Beach County, and, and there no accreditation, no. I mean, in Delray Beach, for example, they have over 600 known sober homes. That's just what they know of. Yeah. And there's a lot of gaming of the system that goes on there. So it's really encouraging to hear you say that uh, you take a perspective of, as you move forward with these, keeping a keen eye on gaming and making sure that that doesn't happen in your state. It's critically important. These are, this, this is a vulnerable segment of our population. These, these are patients that have a vulnerability. We have to protect them. We need to make sure that they, they have a transparent system and that that system provides you know, state-of-the-art um, uh, services. Yeah. yeah. So can we talk a little bit about the collateral consequences of Maryland laws and regulations on employment for ex-offenders? This is, again, a, a fantastic um, area that hasn't been brought to, uh, to light before um, that um, I did have a chance to uh, briefly read about in, your executive, in the executive summary here. It was developed some time ago. And, and, and so the concept, though, to take a look at your laws and say, okay, you know what? We're handicapping these people. Look, they've got a brain disease. It's a chronic brain disease. So we understand that. It's a lifelong brain disease. We've come to grips with that. It's not moral failing. And so we've finally, they've made it through. They've been incarcerated. They've made it out. And they're trying to get their feet on the ground. And now, what laws do we have that are really crippling them from doing that. And you as a state are, are taking some steps to kind of examine those things and see what can be done about that. And I understand that you've engaged the business community to do that. And you've gotten business leaders involved in, okay, 
you know what, you've got a felony, but we're, we're, going, to, um, we're going to employ you just the same. And we're going to have some different rules for you because we understand where you're coming from. Sure. Well, you know, let's start off by talking about the opioid epidemic. And so you can get into this conversation about whether it's, it's the disease or the symptom. You know, what's the underlying cause that drives people to despair or lack of hope uh, in many cases that engage in, you know, in substance you know, use? Um, having employment is important. Having, having the ability to get a job and to serve a purpose in life is important. It's recognized here in Maryland. And so there are some things. I mean, we've engaged the, the, the business community. We have a, a large business in Maryland. Uh, we, we, were just, uh, we were just at a national conference with him. He's a CEO of a, a major corporation. And he, he put a call out to corporations to say, look, you have to engage your workforce, number one, and be sensitive to this epidemic. Number two, you need to be prepared to take a risk. You need to take a risk to give second chances to people who've made a mistake or have substance use disorder and they're working the issue. So we, we, we're building upon that with our Department of Commerce who engages our business community to, to create a sensitivity uh, around this subject so that we can open doors for people that traditionally have had closed doors that want to be um, you know, re-employed or employed. Secondly, you know, our legislature has passed uh, the Justice Reinvestment Act, and really, that's that's a major piece of legislation. But but part of that part of that deals with um, nonviolent offenders, um, you know, that have substance use disorder, uh, you know, being being put into treatment and to not not jail people um, that shouldn't be jailed, frankly. And it and it it, it begins shining the light on this issue that we're discussing, discussing um, that people need a second chance and people that have, um, you know, substance use disorder and they achieve sobriety um, and they're um, on a good track, uh, you know, should be employed, should be re- should reenter the workforce. So, so we, we recognize it, the legislature, the governor recognizes it, and, you know, we're pushing programs to support it. Outstanding. So... Um, some uh, departments of correction now are utilizing medication-assisted treatment programs to help their people re-enter society. Yep. In fact, what they're doing in Pennsylvania is um, about six months prior to release, they go ahead and uh, move them in many cases because Pennsylvania a very long state, right, very wide. Um, so what they'll do is they'll actually transfer them closer and, and then they'll go ahead and engage so that they can engage sure. in their local community where they're going back. Sure. And, and then they get them on Vivitrol prior to release. And, and so they've got that runway of 30 days. They've also got that um, assistance into treatment during that 30-day period. So um, part of your program is also addressing reentry. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So in all of our communities, our correctional facilities um, are engaged in uh, looking at reentry programs and including uh, the community, wrapping the community around individuals there. And, and you know, as, as they, they come to the end of their, their sentence, you know, they, they, they engage their community and, and, uh, um, and, and have, have the community has a sensitivity for the situation that people need to re-enter and re-engage. Um, I'm seeing that all over Maryland in our jurisdictions, number one. Number two, we, we do have um, uh, 14 uh, correctional facilities now that do provide um, naltroxone, which is Vivitrol, uh, to, to um, uh, individuals prior to release. 
And we do have some uh, you know, uh, release programs that, that we're building out, much like other states are. Uh, we recognize that that's an important piece of the puzzle that we need. In this segment, Clay talks about the four elements we must achieve in addressing the opioid epidemic. As he speaks, it underscores the importance of having a statewide neutral view of the epidemic, once again, reinforcing the fact that declaring a state of emergency over the opioid epidemic can be a game changer for many of our states that are struggling to address the opioid crisis. And so as I go out and talk to the hundreds and thousands of people across Maryland, you know, I, I talk about, you know, four elements that we have to achieve. I try to always, always kind of bring things back to the basics. And the first element I talk about is that, you know, we need to elevate the conversation in our communities. Every community, we need to elevate the conversation, but not just elevate it. We need to keep a personal face on it. You know, our team, we go out, the governor sends us information on individuals that have lost loved ones, and we go out and we talk to these individuals. And one thread that I have found in talking to all of them is, please don't let my loved one become a number. We can't afford to let this become a, st a st statistical exercise. Um, we have to keep a face on it. So elevate the conversation in our communities, number one. Number two, again, I mentioned earlier, we don't have the luxury to all do different things in attacking this crisis. We need to get behind a balanced strategy, and in this case, prevention enforcement and expanding access to treatment. The third thing is, is we have to use data to drive our decisions, and we have to use data to measure the effectiveness of our programs and be nimble enough to change the course if it's not working. So we have to break down traditional walls where we can't share data, at the same time respecting people's individual rights, and that's a balance. And then the final thing is we have to manage expectations, and we have to persevere. We didn't get into this overnight, and we're not going to get out of it overnight. The key thing here is to establish a system of coordination at a high level to drive programs down to the streets and monitor those programs. The ones that are working, get behind them. The ones that aren't, throw them out. And that system of coordination is what we're driving. And those four elements, is, those are the things we need to do to move forward in attacking this crisis. We've talked about a lot of programs that are working and working well in your state. Are there any that you'd like to mention that we've overlooked? So, you know, there are, there are some interesting programs that we have. We have a day reporting center that we want to replicate across uh, Maryland where this is a correctional facility that, um, you know, Part of their discharge process, they volunteer for it, but they get the Vivitrol treatment, and then they go into a four-phase program that introduces them back into the community, and the community has come together and wrapped around this program. So you have, you have part of the community that is, uh, is, is poised to offer them jobs. You have part of the community that is poised to offer them housing. You have individuals teaching them um, how to balance their checkbook, personal hygiene. Wow, a lot of life skills that mixed in here. Absolutely. And we're seeing good results from it, right? Huh? We're seeing we're seeing uh, nonprofits get together and put together art competitions for our, for our high school students to provide scholarship opportunities for them. We had a regional art competition on the Lower Shore of Maryland um, and in in the uh, the scholarship awards were actually awarded to the winners uh, from from uh, drug forfeiture seizure money, uh, which is really creative, right? Yeah, yeah. that's and, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I could, I could just go on and on about some of the programs that are really exciting that we want to replicate across Maryland. 
And frankly, you know, this again, as we talked before the podcast, um, you know, this, this crisis isn't, isn't affecting just Maryland. We can learn from each other across the United States. And individuals like yourself, Greg, you bring a perspective to the table that's very helpful because you create that, that bridge between all the states that are wrestling the same problem. And so, you know, I appreciate the work that you do communicating the message. We have to get everybody behind this. This is probably the number one crisis affecting the United States of America right now. Some of the most brightest, artistic, intelligent individuals are being ripped from our grasp every day. And we have to stop it. And we can do it as a nation because we've done it before. Wow. Tremendous. Um, Clea, I'd like to just ask you for sharing some final thoughts. That may, may have been it, but I, I think there's more here. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the fight against the opioid epidemic here in Maryland? Sure. And words of hope and words of encouragement, yeah. I suspect, as well. So, you know, what I say to individuals as I talk to them is, you know, take a, take a pause and look into yourself before you make a judgment. Uh, around this issue and try to find some empathy. You know, the, the human condition is, fa- is fragile. And, you know, we all have challenges. And so we need everybody to recognize that we, we have a force that's being put on our, our, our citizens in this country that are threatening the fra- fabric of our very nation. This is a time to come together against this. You know, I, you know I, I even sometimes I refer to it as a poisoning of our people. You know, we've seen a shift in the first two quarters of this month. We, we did a data analysis in Maryland. And for the first time, we're seeing a decrease in the number of prescribed opioids, which means that the physicians are getting the message. And, we, and, 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 we're, and that message is, is you know, is, is getting through. We're also seeing a decrease in the first two quarters in the number of opioid-related deaths, and we're seeing a decrease in the number of heroin-related deaths. But we're seeing an increase, a substantial increase in the number of fentanyl-related deaths. And not only is it fentanyl, but it's fentanyl being mixed with everything else. So what we're seeing is a shift from, you know, prescribers, which we still need to, we still need to focus on, clearly. Sure. Okay? Yep. But we're seeing a shift to the illicit drug market. Yep. And that's scary because that illicit drug market Right now, you don't know what you're going to get on the street, and it's poison. And again, so in closing, what I would say is that, you know, we need everybody to recognize this for what it is. And this is an attack on our country. It's removing some of the most creative people in our society. We need to have empathy. We need to get together and pull everything we have together to fight this from a balanced approach. Well, once again, Clay, I'd like like to thank you for your time today. This has been amazing, absolutely amazing. Talking with us today about the Opioid Operational Command Center and a coordinated response to the opioid epidemic in Maryland has been Clay Stamp, who's the executive director of the command center. After we concluded our interview, Clay shared with me something that I think bears repeating. He said it's important to note that the national public health emergency elevates the attention around the epidemic. The declaration, though, must be fortified with both congressional funding and direction from the White House to FEMA 
to provide multi-agency emergency support function coordination, as outlined in the National Emergency Framework. This aligns both federal support to state and local efforts. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.